And for the rest of you, let's open up our Bibles together to Matthew chapter 5. So Matthew chapter 5. And we'll be reading verses 1 to 12 today. So we're at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Let's read God's holy word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of mine. Rejoice, And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Uh, Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time. Uh, Lord, as we open up and as we uh, consider um, the words ultimately of your Son, we we pray, God, that you would uh, help us to see the relevance, Lord, even as we're reading something that seems so uh, countercultural, so uh, different than what we are used to hearing. God, help us to see the life and the truth in all of this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you probably have seen a variation of this meme, but the meme is this. So at the top of the meme, it has a, a career, it has a position, maybe even a state of being, And it's got four to six or even eight boxes underneath with images with descriptions underneath each image. For example, the one I came across, it said teacher. And then each box, it had an image. And one was uh, what my friends think I do, what students think I do, what parents think I do, what I think I do, what I actually do. And each picture, and it's, it's often comical, uh, the, the friends one had uh, the teacher tied up by the students where the students are going all crazy. The teachers think of the, the, the students thinking of the teacher, uh, they viewed a drill sergeant, somebody in the military who is constantly yelling at them. Uh, parents uh, thinking that there's this like ideal classroom setting that's taking place. Uh, the, the actual teacher thinks that they are making this like noble difference, almost like a superhero. And then society views them uh, low, that they're doing nothing. And then what is actually going on, you've got the teacher's head in their hands, overwhelmed by a sea of paperwork. And really, when we think of that, it's, it's really all about perspective, Right? Each image is labeling a position, a state of being, or whatever, but the same scenario with a different perspective. 
Where you're coming from and how you view something impacts based on our perception of reality. And that's especially true when it comes to life. What blessedness appears to be and what it looks like to have a blessed life is going to differ from one perspective to the next. So if we would have had that meme with the blessed life, each box would look differently depending on who is defining that box. But the actual reality of what the blessed life would look like, there's only one box, and it's God's. It's what God thinks, what God declares is best. It's from God's vantage point. He is the one who defines what it means to be blessed. So we're going to look to God today, as we look at our own lives, to determine and to declare what is the blessed life look like. Uh, For those who are note takers, we will begin our time by looking at uh, the proclamation of the blessed life. As Jesus starts off this very famous sermon, he's going to label people being blessed. Jesus is declaring that this condition, this state of blessing is taking place. Secondly, we're going to see the position of the blessed life. And it's going to be surprising if you weren't surprised already when we read that list. Those circumstances don't, on the surface, look that blessed at all. So we're going to unpack what that means. And then lastly, we will see the prize for the blessed life. We'll see the prize, the reward that is guaranteed and awaits those who ultimately are trusting in Christ. So let's get started as we look at the proclamation of the blessed life. Now, if you remember last week, we saw a snapshot, a portfolio of Jesus's earthly ministry. And we saw what it looks like, what it doesn't look like, what you and I would look like if we were engaged in gospel work. And this week, we begin the most famous, arguably, of sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. It is found elsewhere in Luke in a little less detail, but uh, there's other elements to the sermon uh, found in the Gospel of Luke. And right here, we're going to do the Beatitudes. Now, Andy and I, we've prayed about this. We've talked about it. We thought about it for a while. Uh, What I'm doing today is we are doing one sermon on the Beatitudes, We could have broke down each individual one. Uh, We're not doing that now. Our hope and our prayer is down the road, we will come back and revisit this and do like an eight-week series going through the Beatitudes. The same is going to be the case when we do the Lord's Prayer. We're going to go through the sermon, one sermon on the Lord's Prayer, but would like to eventually revisit those and go in a much slower uh, manner. So kind of give you a, a glimpse of what we're thinking as we're going into this passage. But as we look now, since we're doing one sermon on the, the Beatitudes, uh, we're going to define the, best, the blessed life. We're defining the blessed life. Read verses one to three with me. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed or blessed. Now, when we we say beatitudes, it's from Latin, and Latin, uh, the Latin word for, guess what? Blessed. So that's why we get beatitudes. Uh, There's arguments over how many beatitudes are right here. I'm going to go with the argument that there are eight. 
The last one is kind of developed in multiple verses, but only eight Beatitudes. But what are we talking about when we say blessed? As always, when we use a word too much, when we use a word in various ways in our culture, in our society, it loses meaning. So when we say blessed, usually we talk about if you're eating, hey, will you bless the food? Will you, will you pray? At the end of the sermon, we'll do a benediction, which is a, is, is a, is a blessing. So we think of that. Um, and in our society, when we say blessed, let's be really transparent with one another. Hashtag blessed means your life is good. Relationships are good. Health is good. Finances are good. All the, like, the ideal scenarios of life are going well. We consider it blessed. What we're talking about here is much more meaningful, much more significant, much more detailed, much more God-defined. To be blessed is to have God's favor and approval. One author says it's the applause of heaven and the contentment that flows from such a relationship with God. We've already seen a little bit of this with Jesus, right? After he was baptized, what did we hear from the voice from heaven? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. So you could argue in that passage specifically, Jesus was clearly blessed. He had the approval of the the Father. Uh, The first time we see blessed, does anybody have any idea in the Bible? In Genesis chapter 1, the fifth day and the sixth day. We're going to highlight the sixth day. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God, let's say it, he blessed them. And he goes on to say, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and, and subdue it. So it's the idea of that kind of blessing. Now, there is a sense of happiness in blessing, but it's more of the overflow of the approval of, of God So in in this context, so it's God's favor which comes with empowered, endowed power to live out God's plan for their life. So he's he's blessing them, he's approving of them. You remember, this is pre-fall, and he's also blessing them with the ability to go out and do what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it's this experience with God where we're declared right with him and we have this approval of him and this contentment with him. So I I have to ask before we move on, are you currently blessed as that is defined? Are you right with God? Do you have that proper relationship with him through Jesus Christ? That's the blessing we're talking about. What we're not talking about, and when we, we see blessing in the Bible, it often comes with a opposite We see a lot of that. We saw it last week, remember? We looked at darkness and light. We look at evil and we look at what? Good. And right here, you look at blessing. Does anybody have an idea what the other thing is? Cursing. Cursing. It's the idea of God being against us. So not approving, being against. Not having his favor. 
The whole chapter of Deuteronomy 28, it talks about the blessings of obedience, the cursing of disobedience. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey, but if you will not obey, curses shall come upon you. So these experiences, the idea of cursing, are misery, unrest. And that's really the reality of who we are without Jesus. That's, that's what Paul talks about to the Galatians. Curse is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the law and does them. So you live an imperfect life, you are cursed. You are not under God's approval, rather you are under God's wrath. So I have to ask, are you currently under God's curse? Are you unsettled knowing that you are not right with him? And that's really the defining of the, the blessed life, where we stand with God. But secondly, I want us to see the definer of the blessed life, the definer of the blessed life. Notice who is declaring this. He opened his mouth. Who is the he we're speaking of? Jesus, the eternal son of God. He is the one declaring. He is the one defining who is blessed. He is the definer of blessing. In the garden, who was the one that blessed the people? It was God the creator. He is in the position of power and authority to declare it. I think we've all probably have unfortunately had this happen where somebody spoke on your behalf and you did not ask them to speak on your behalf. Ever happen? They gave your approval of something. They said that you liked something. They said you disliked something. They said you were not approving of something. And you end up hearing about it via word of mouth. And they come back and say, oh, I heard that you didn't like that. Or, and like, where'd you hear that from? Well, John said that. And you're like, whoa, 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 time out. I never said that. And I think sometimes we start talking about this blessed life and this idea of blessing, and we don't let God to declare it. We allow other people to speak on his behalf. Even people who maybe even carry the title of what I carry, pastor, who would define a blessed life way differently than how God declares it. And they would argue, well, that's what God says. No, that's not what God says. We go to the word to see what God says. The creator defines blessedness. Isaiah 66, 2. It says, this is the one in whom I look upon. This is the one in whom I esteem. He was humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. You see, God's vantage point on this subject matter is what matters, not yours. Because I think you and I, we look at our circumstances. We're going to unpack this a little bit. And that's how we define blessedness. When no, God takes a step back from his point of view, and he's the one that declares blessing. Revelation 19, 19, it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's true blessing. That we're right with God, that we're going to spend eternity with God. That is the person who is blessed. Or are you listening to God on this matter? Now, if God is the definer of blessing, that means the world including you and I, are not the definer of blessing. As I mentioned, some translations say it's happy. 
happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are theirs. And once again, with, when we hear happy, we think smiley face and this is awesome. And, and that the, any happiness that is defined in the blessed word that's used for Hebrew carries the, the contentment, the satisfaction of being in a right relationship with God. So there is happiness, but it's not just an emotional feeling. You see, because the world defines blessing as what? Often materialistically. I mean, we have the American dream, right? We have people constantly coming into our country legally and illegally because they want to come here to achieve the American dream. And what's the American dream? The white picket fence, house in the suburbs, a 401k, a family, vacations. Like that is how we define blessedness in our culture, our best life now. But you see, the blessings that we're reading of here are tied to God, not to circumstances. The world defines blessing based on circumstances. And that's why Jesus makes such a distinction. Matthew 16, 26, for what profit is it if a man gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? So I want to challenge us. I want to push us this morning to not buy into the world's point of view. James 1 says, count it all joy when you meet what? Trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Or are you buying into the world's propaganda and lies when it comes to blessedness? Are you currently stuck in this, this rut, this kind of the hamster wheel where you're just, you're, I, mean, I just, I want to be blessed. So I'm working so hard as my children are getting older and they're going to go away to college and, and all of that. Like I really want them to have a worldview that is rooted in the gospel. That I don't want their career decision to be based on, this is what I'm going to make the most money. I'm going to achieve the most success. I want them to do something that they can honor Christ, whether it is a well-paying job or it's not. That they are, their focus would not be on the world's view of blessedness. So that's a proclamation uh, defining in the, the definer of blessed life. Let's consider what Jesus says this is going to look like. And it, let's be candid. It is shocking. It is surprising. First of all, we see undervalued attitudes. We see undervalued attitudes. Read verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for those shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Notice how countercultural this is. It starts right off with the idea of poor and poverty, something that we never celebrate in our country, right? People play the lottery because it is the hope, the quick fix, the easy way, maybe even though statistics would argue against it, that you're going to go from not wealthy to extremely wealthy. Would anybody play the lottery if the winner ended up losing money and becoming bankrupt? So instead of the billion-dollar multi-state lottery, if you win this lottery, you will be in bankruptcy the rest of your life. Who's playing that? Nobody. 
And yet here, now he's not talking about finances. We need to understand that. He's talking about a poverty in spirit. But but when we hear that, it just, it doesn't sound good to us. You know what it means? It means an awareness of the lack of you bringing anything into the relationship with God. It means that you are spiritually bankrupt apart from God's saving work. Romans 3.10 says, There is no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So he's celebrating this kind of a poverty, which does not sound right. Secondly, mourning. Who here likes to cry? I mean, most of us don't. Maybe there are a few oddballs in their midst that, man, I love a good cry. But let's be honest. I mean, we don't go through the week and like, you know what? Nothing sad has happened to me today. Man, I just, man, I mean, I know the day's not over, but man, I'm just kind of crossing my fingers that something will break my heart. And yet he celebrates it. Once again, the morning that he's speaking of here, probably not talking about necessarily crying over the loss of a loved one or crying over this. Or it, it is the idea of mourning over our unrighteousness. Mourning over our sin. Mourning over the impact of sin. Isaiah 6, 5 says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Next one, meekness. Once again, when we hear meekness, we hear the word weakness. The idea of a doormat, somebody who is a pushover that can be manipulated, that really has no backbone. But what he's speaking of is somebody who is gentle, who is not demanding of their own opinion, specifically with God. It's, it's this humility before God that you're God, I'm not, I'm resting in you. What Job was for a good portion of the book of Job before kind of unbelief kind of sits in. And then lastly, he says, being hungry and thirsting for righteousness. Once again, do we like being hungry? No, we like satisfying hunger. Do we like being thirsty? No, we like satisfying thirst. But we don't like lacking something. And he's celebrating lacking. That this person is in this perpetual state of longing for more of God. Longing for his righteousness. Longing to pursue him. And this is the condition that he is saying is God's favor and approval. Well, does this surprise you? Is it confusing? Because it's not, it makes no sense as we look at our world. But notice also, not only is it countercultural, this is Christ's character, is it not? These are all character qualities exemplified by Jesus Christ in its entirety. It's that we often say the spinning image of someone. And what we usually mean is it's a resemblance, like a a child to their mom or dad, maybe a child to their siblings, or it's like, oh, they're mini-me, we'll say, at home. That's what we see here. The characters that he's saying are blessed are the characters that we see in Christ. So when we see this quality in us, it's us resembling Christ. Philippians 2.5, have this attitude among yourselves, which was in Jesus Christ. These are marks, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, of a true Christian. 
And really, at the end of the day, it's a heart issue, is it not? Everything that we're looking at here, it's having a high view of God, an exalted view of Yahweh, and a, a lower, more realistic view of humanity and self. self. Well, do you value what Christ values? Do you long to, to resemble him? Do you strive for such likeness? In your life, because these are not only undervalued attitudes, they are undesired actions. Continue on verse 7 with me. He says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure at heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other kind utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice first of all in these undesired action these are things that we don't want to do. These are things that we don't want to do. I have a question for parents. Are there particular chores in your house that your kids do not want to do or is it only a Hillrich thing? Because I mean, I, I love hearing it when we're, especially we, so we have life group at our house. And when life group comes, kids know, ah, oh, got to get the house cleaned up and order. And there are just certain things that they just don't want to do. They don't want to put the dishes away. They don't want to sweep. They don't want to clean. I do not have a Mary Poppins in my house. In my house. There's no spoonful of sugar, make the medicine go down. There's no dancing. It's just begrudging. Oh, I have to clean. Uh, surprisingly, I also do not like to clean with them, but we do it nonetheless. I think some of these things that we see on this list would fall in that category that we don't want to do. Think of, first of all, being merciful. Do you like to show mercy? Because I think deep down in our core, as sinners still, there is something unsettling about mercy because it means you are not giving something to someone that they deserve. It seems, in our warped, twisted mind, unjust. It seems wrong. There's something that we kind of feel a vindication when we, if somebody's been really mean to you and you lash out to them with your words— in the moment, doesn't it feel good? Because we want to do that. We don't want to show mercy. That was the problem with the unmerciful servant, Matthew 18, 28. The same servant, remember, he gets all this mercy shown to him. He goes out, finds a servant who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seizes him, he begins to choke him, and saying, pay what you owe. He's unable to pay him. He throws him into prison. How about pure in heart? You know what pure in heart means? It means living a life that pleases God in all that you do. It means that you do not please yourself. It means saying no to sin. It means saying no to your desires. It means saying no to pleasure. Who here likes to say no to ourselves? We don't. It comes very unnatural for us. If you're struggling with eating and dieting, who here wants to say no to your favorite foods? There's that cake there. You're like, no, this is good test of my willpower. No, it, it, like you need to remove it because I don't like saying no. How about the peacemaker? There's a focus on, on making peace. Let's be honest. Most of the time we don't want to be in the middle. 
We don't want to be the mediator. We don't want to reconcile people. We want to kind of stay far away from that stuff. Do you see the difficulty in the flesh to live like Jesus is commending? But it's not only what we don't want to do, it's what we don't want done to us being on the end of persecution and affliction. I mean, listen, this just doesn't make sense, friends. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I don't know how celebrities do it. I just don't. I don't feel bad for celebrities, so, so let's hear me rightly. But when I'm at the grocery store and I'm standing there waiting in line and I see the tabloids and you have a name, whatever the celebrity is, and all these accusations and claims, I can't imagine going into a store seeing my name thrown through the mud, and and knowing, especially in in these, maybe some of the the accusations are true, I don't know. Maybe the person was an alien or whatever wild thing I read. But you know what I mean? Like, there would be a part of me, my inner defense attorney, that would want to stand up and say, hey, that is not true. Like, even in line, if I was on the the tabloid and the people be in front of me, I'd say, hey, that, don't, don't pay any attention to that. You know, there's that, that sense, but as a Christian— We need to be able to rejoice. We need to be able to embrace this kind of suffering. Acts 5.41, after the disciples got persecuted, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Finding such affliction as a blessing and an opportunity. What did Jesus say? They hated me. They're not going to hate you. No, he said they hated me. They will hate you. I think it's a hard one for us to grasp, to embrace. We want our cake and eat it too. Here's really what we desire. Let's be real. Isn't this sound ideal? We're going to be faithful to Jesus and the gospel and we're going to be in loved and embraced by the world. Doesn't that sound awesome? I mean, that's what I would love. As a pastor, I would love that. I would love to be faithful and constantly be in loved by the world. Like, but those things seem to be, according to Scripture, pretty opposed to one another. That faithfulness is going to lead to persecution. And Jesus is aware of that when he's speaking to them and saying, Rather than look at yourself being cursed, rather looking at yourself like this is unfair, look at it as, man, this is my blessing. That this is worth it. Well, do you trust God? Are you open to persecution and suffering for the sake of Jesus? So we see the proclamation defining in the definer of blessed life. We see the position, undervalued attitudes, undesired actions, the incentive and promise that await the blessed life is what should inspire us, the prize for the blessed life. First of all, there is a spiritual focus. We're just going to read the second half of the verses, okay? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be satisfied. Notice the lavish nature to these promises. You're going to get kingdom, you get comfort, you get the earth, you get satisfaction. Now we hear those things, they're lavish in scope, they're exciting, but I'm not necessarily seeing everybody's face light up. 
It's kind of one of those moments where you ask, what's for dinner? And your spouse says it, and you're like, okay. Like, it's all right, but like, I mean, there's certain meals at home when, when I hear about them, like, sweet, can't wait. And then there's other times they're like, they're good, they're edible, but like, you know, and I think sometimes we look at, my wife is a very good cook, so I'm just opening up Pandora's box this morning. I'm going to shut it. She's an exceptional cook. I just am a really picky eater, okay? I'm a baby. But you understand, like, we, I think we, we devalue, we don't appreciate what is promised here. Because we're looking at it through the world's eyes. We're underwhelmed. What we want to hear in that list is health, wealth, prosperity, fame, fortune, power. And we're not appreciating what is truly offered. 1 Corinthians 2.9, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Well, do you see the greatness in God's promises? Are they exciting you? Because not only are they lavish, they're lasting promises. These things don't, they, they, they don't end the ideas here. The kingdom of heaven, the inheriting of the earth. Because in this world, things don't last, right? We're at, we're at Life Group on Friday, and it was getting a little muggy heat. We turned on the fan and just kept making a noise. Could not figure it out. So yesterday, first thing, woke up, brought the ladder in, climbed up there, messed with it, could not fix it, just going crazy. And then mess with it some more, turn it on a little bit later, no noise. Like, is that, I mean, isn't that home ownership? Home ownership 101, things will not last. Like, toilets leak, air conditioners stop working, heaters, this, it's, just, it's this constant state of decay. So that's kind of what we're used to. And then when we hear these promises of God that are lasting, it should blow us away. Think of the kingdom. When we think of the word kingdom in the Bible, kingdoms come and what? Go. There were the Greeks. There was the Syrians. There was the Assyrians. There was the Babylonians. There's the Romans. Like kingdoms come and go, but the kingdom of heaven, it lasts forever. Think of mourning. Often sometimes it, 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 the, the idea of comfort, it's very short-lived, but when he speaks of comfort here, it's this ongoing hope and encouragement. Even the hunger and thirst, he's saying that at some point the hunger and thirst will end. Why? Because you will be satisfied. And even the new heavens and the new earth, we will inherit. First John two seventeen. the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And we're going to inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And that's why when we see like the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, richest person to ever live, and it talks about how he, he pursued these things and, and sought these things, and he said they were vanity of vanity, chasing after the wind. But what we're speaking of here matters. We'll have the prizes of this world diminish the prize of heaven. Have you seen the decay I think what really needs to happen is God needs to uh, reprogram, on, reprogram us of what truly is significant. Because not only the spiritual focus, there is a, a future uh, fulfillment here. 
goes on in verse 7. Notice what he says. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called sons of God. Uh, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Your reward is great in heaven. Uh, So a lot of the promises we read here are in the what? In the future. But before we talk about that, I do want to stress, there is a now element to these promises. Now there are people out there who come from wealth and they're given a trust fund. And the trust fund is untouchable to a certain age. And it's possible for the person with the trust fund that they could be in poverty until the trust fund kicks in. Like, there, it's just, it, it, it has no value to them until this coming of, of age experience. And I, I want you to hear this. That is not our relationship with Jesus. It's not like a trust fund that it comes to value when we die. That there's no current ongoing value. That is not the case. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So even think about it. Right now, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are blessed now. You have a relationship with God. You've received grace and mercy of forgiveness. You, you have somebody who you can talk to and he, he answers prayer. You have the Holy Spirit in your life to guide and empower and direct you. You have a new heart. You get to see God at work in your life. He dwells within us. We're actually his children. Uh, we're really blessed in Christ. So I, I want you to stress that you are blessed today. Are you grateful for that? Are you mindful of your current ongoing blessings? But that's just the now element. There is a not yet to these promises. The full fruition of everything that we read here and the manifestation of it will be eternity. And I think what Jesus is doing when he communicates this to them and to us is challenging us to keep our eyes on the prize. I think it's very easy for us to get distracted and to look at the short term. I'm not a huge person into investing, but one of the dangers financially in investing is if you constantly, if you have success immediately pulling out your money and maybe even cashing it in. And, and, and I think one of the keys with investing is thinking long haul, end game big picture that the market can kind of go up and down, but you're, 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 you're staying the course. And I think spiritually what we need to be doing is staying the course, thinking the long game. Psalm 73 talks about the problem of this because the short game, you and I, we look at the difficulties of being a Christian and then we look over across the street at the wicked and they thrive and they prosper and life goes easy and it seems unfair. It seems like you and I are getting the raw end of the deal and we want to kind of shake our fists in frustration with God. But in Psalm 73, 
God allows him to take a step back. He allows him to see big picture that this person that he is envying is actually going to experience the wrath of God. And all of a sudden he goes from envying him to pitying him. And he goes from frustrated position to rejoicing that he is not in that position. And I think that's what needs to happen with us. To stop being so impatient with God's timing and start viewing how blessed you and I are. Because I think we need help in that. How many people wear glasses in this room? Raise your hand. Fair amount of people. Uh, some need them young, some need them old. Sometimes there's seasons in life. I actually grew up, so I think right around the age of six, I, I got to wear glasses uh, I had a stigmatism in my eye, so my eyes would cross. So I wore them from the time I was six until I think around 13. Uh, if you look in my school pictures, I, you saw how sporty. I made glasses cool. Did not, did not at all. I remember the one thing we would always do, and as I look back, I'm like, oh, why did I do that? My glasses changed. If I went outside, they turned into uh, sunglasses. So I would come inside and I had dark glasses after the sun. Looks ridiculous as I look back at pictures. Uh, yeah, so that was the point of glasses. Well, over time, my glasses actually strengthened my eyes and I was able at 13, I, I did not wear glasses anymore and haven't had to wear glasses since. As I'm getting older, I feel like glasses are going to be revisiting in the near future, at least with the reading. Small font and print. I'm taking pictures with my phone and I'm zooming in to see. So, yeah, I think glasses might be coming. I think the point of glasses is what? Your vision is lacking something. It necessitates help. Maybe you can, things come too close, too far away, whatever it is. And I, and I think what, as we read the Sermon on the Mount and as we're even going to go on, because everything we read about in the Sermon on the Mount is going to be very countercultural. Every week it's going to be so different than what we're hearing. And I think what you and I need is we need God to give us spiritual glasses. Ultimately, we need the eyes of Christ. I, I remember the lyrics to a song. He says, give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes so I can see everything I keep missing. Give me your love for humanity. Give me your arms for the brokenhearted, the ones that are far beyond my reach. Give me your heart for the ones forgotten. Give me your eyes so I can see. And I think that's what we need, friends, when we think of the Beatitudes. That as we gaze at this life, as we look at it, it's all about perspective. Because we're not of this world. Stop thinking like the world. Stop celebrating the things of the world. Stop striving and chasing after the things of the world. Who would you rather be pleased with you, the world or God? Whose favor would you rather have, man's or God's? Because the one who is right with God through Jesus Christ is blessed. That is what blessedness looks like. And if you're in that position today, praise him. Let's pray and close our time. Father, we come before you right now and we uh, confess, we acknowledge that often we look at our life as cursed when it's not going according to our plan. 
When we get that diagnosis that we did not want in health, when we encounter financial difficulties, when we don't get that job, when a relationship uh, falls apart, uh, when we look at those things, we consider our lives cursed. But when everything is peachy and, and perfect, it's then that we're blessed. God, forgive us for not seeing as you see. Give us eyes so that we can see what true blessedness is, and that is being in a right relationship with you, having your favor, and that in your love for us, that also includes situations and circumstances that are difficult because you're developing perseverance and you're strengthening and building up our faith. So, Lord, we ask even right now that we believe but help us in our unbelief. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand as we respond?